0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I have the pleasure of being joined by Zena Tavares. Uh, and Zena is a PhD student at MIT. And he is uh, actually, he spoke this morning here at the conference on running programs in reverse for exactly. a deeper AI. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really interested in hearing more about uh, what that's all about. So welcome. Thanks. welcome Zena. I'm
1: happy to be here.
0: Uh, great to have you on. Uh, so why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in AI,
1: what yeah. you're up to at MIT, all that stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm from London. I studied electronic engineering for my undergrad, and I think I first got into research. Or I became interested in research when I studied abroad in Japan, and so okay. I went to Japan, and I worked in this lab. The, the the PI for that lab, the advisor for that lab, this famous Japanese guy. You might have, you might have seen him. He builds these really um, life like robots. Okay. So he builds them like of people in the lab. So look, there's one of him and there's one of some of the lab students. Oh wow! Um, and so that was my first. Uh, kind of touch of, of research, and I thought, I mean, this is a cool environment. Um, and also I thought studying the brain is a cool thing. And so I finished my undergrad, I, I did a master's degree, which is in uh, basically neuroscience. Okay. And so then I, after that, I thought, okay, let me come to the States, and I came to MIT, um, and I joined MIT in the BCS, which is the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department. So it's okay. a mixture of uh, neuroscience and cogniz- cognitive science, which is basically psychology. Okay. Um, and from there, I kind of transitioned more into the computer science side, and so now I, I sit in CSAL, the computer science AI lab, um, where I work on basically using ideas from computer science and programming languages to study things about how the mind works. Okay. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a, uh, you've been a bunch of interesting places,
0: uh, for sure. So I read the, the abstract for your talk, running programs in reverse. Yeah. And it sounds like that's a thing, like program inversion. I hadn't heard about that before. Why don't you tell us a little bit about program inversion and like how, where's the intersection between
1: that and AI? Sure. So maybe the best way to describe it is how I came to the, uh, the problem. Okay. Um, and so there's a, a professor at uh, MIT called Josh Tenenbaum. And when I joined MIT, he was talking about this idea. Josh Tenenbaum, the networking guy? Or. Operating systems? Mm, no, I don't think so. He's more of a a, a psychologist. A, a, oh, okay. Like a scientist.
0: Yeah, I think there's another Josh Tenenbaum that wrote a book. And I forget which book that uh, we use in in my engineering program, right. either networking or um, operating systems
1: or something. Yeah, I think but, it's the same. It could be the same. Any, <laughs> anyway, so Josh Tenenbaum <laughs> uh, at MIT in the BCM. at MIT. Okay. And he told me about this idea of inverse graphics and the way he describes it is basically like this so you can think of rendering this this process which we use in animation films like Toy Story to go from a 3D representation of the world to 2D images or video that you go and see when you go to the movies okay and you can think of vision as in seeing as the inverse of that process in the sense that Mm. I get into my eyes two-dimensional images and somehow from that, I infer the three-dimensional structure of the world. Right? Okay. I infer the geometry. I can figure out where the lights are. I can figure out where I am in, in relation to the world. And so there's this like inverse relationship between rendering or graphics and vision. Okay. Um, and so it's it's not. I don't think it's his idea. It's an old idea in computer vision. But nobody's really taken it literally. Right? And so some other people mm-hmm. in Josh's lab, um, like Tejas and Ilka, they've worked on similar projects and the idea I had was, okay, what if we like literally, literally took this idea? Like what if we took a rendering algorithm similar right. to the kind they use in you know, computer graphics and tried to run that algorithm backwards from the from the output, from the image, literally backwards to the 3D structure. Oh wow. Okay. Um, so that was the kind of the the motivation or like how I came to this project. And then you know, after we started, you know, I mean there's many issues that arise. But we realize that it's actually a you know a kind of a general framework that we can use to think about many different kinds of problems
0: okay and it sounds like at least in the
1: graphics case it works generally I mean, I, I, I mean it works in the research sense right uh, so <laughs> I mean it works <laughs> it, I, does, it produces something yeah it produces, so yeah so we, we have a, we have a working prototype for a particular kind of 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 graphics so we can take in you know two d images um, from a a fairly primitive Voxel renderer. So the input are images and the output are 3D voxel shapes. So we can't do like, you know, super complicated geometric structure. Right. But, um, but we can do, you know, kind of cool, interesting shapes. And we're doing it in a way which I don't think anybody has, has done before. Okay. And so we hope that we can scale up to these, you know, you know, to real, to real kind of realistic scenes. But that's going to require a lot more work. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, what you were talking about here was applying that to AI. So, yeah, so you know, I started with this example of inverse rendering or like inverse graphics. Right. Um, but you know, the way I opened my talk was talking about this idea of mental stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um so mental stimulation is an idea, it's an old idea in psychology. And the basic idea is that the way that you can reason about the world, like the way that I can you know pick up objects or know that something's stable or unstable, is that I have a kind of simulator in my head. Right. And so I look at the world, I construct a model of the world inside my head. And then I can run that simulation and figure out what's gonna happen. Right? So I can figure out oh, this is this is this object's not stable because in my simulation it falls over. Right. right. Um, and so one of the ways that we're trying to basically extend this idea of inverse graphics to more general problems is say, well, can we like do inverse physical simulation? Right? So for example, you could say things like, oh, what I want to do is um fold some clothes, right? Or right. I want to you know pick up some object in some, you know, in some dynamic environment. And so one way to frame that problem is to say, well, I have some end state that I'm trying to get to. Let me run a a kind of a a physical simulation backwards and say, okay, what are the inputs that have to go into that system Mm. for me to reach the desired end state? Okay. And so that's the way that we're trying to solve the problem. I mean, many people approach this problem in various different ways. I would say that the kind of the main distinguishing point about our approach is that we really try to take this idea literally. We take real physical simulators and we're trying to Run them backwards. The tools that we've developed—they're quite general, so they can apply to many different problems. So if you can reformulate your problem in terms of a kind of program inversion, then hopefully we can have a like a, a stab at trying to solve it. Hmm. And so, do do I need to
0: reformulate reform- my problem um, in terms of uh, in the terms of program inversion, or is that something that your tools will do or help me do? That's something you need to do, but it's—I mean—it's not like. A, and are you, are you are you speaking of me reformulating my problem like at the level of a problem statement, or like yeah. I've got the okay,
1: yeah, not so, the my program, yeah, yeah. So the problem statement, that's got what I'm it. talking about. Okay. So like, if you can formulate your problem like you know, in your in your head or like got mathematically it. as a form of program inversion, and what I would argue is that actually many problems can be formulated in terms of program inversion, right? Because programs are very general things, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Can you then, give us some examples of um, ones that will help us wrap our heads around a concept? Sure. So, okay, so, for example, and I'm not saying that we can solve this kind of problem yet, right, <laughs> but so, for example, you know, if you had a, you know, a big kind of quantum simulator, right, which takes as input some molecules and as output, you know, it says, okay, how efficient would this molecule be as, a, you know, in a solar panel? For example. Okay. Right? So, this is like a forward simulator, it does all kinds of quantum simulations, and it says, okay, the efficiency of this molecule you know, is 90% or whatever, right? Um, so, you can think of the inverse of that process as going from the efficiency that you want back to the molecule. So, now you have a right. kind of discovery of, of chemicals, right? Got it. Uh, um, Got it. Uh, or optimization, right? So, right. You know, optimi- optimization comes up in all kinds of fields. Mm-hmm. And so, you have some loss function which takes in something and says, okay, how good is that thing? Right. right if you can invert an optimization so if you can invert a loss function you can do optimization you can say okay mm. here is the cost that i'm trying to achieve right. what is the input that you know realizes that cost right it strikes me from hearing the examples
0: that you gave that the you know the challenge is that the in the forward direction the output space is like much more constrained it's a number yeah. right whereas in the reverse direction the output space is Massive, if not infinite.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So when I first came to this, uh, you know, this idea, you know, I, I remember I was, I was sitting in one of Josh's Josh Tenenbaum's lab meetings, and I was thinking, okay, why don't we just try and run this program backwards, right? And then right. obviously, the first thing you get into is that often these functions or these programs are not invertible, right? The, right. Which means that there are many outputs which map to the same. Sorry, many inputs which map to the same output. Mm-hmm. And so in the inverse direction, you have a choice, like which way should you go, which way should you go backwards, right? If I've got many X's which map to Y and I'm going backwards from Y to X, like what should I choose? How do I do that? Right. And so the theory that I came up with, we now call parametric inversion. Okay. And it basically says if you're trying to invert a non-invertible function, Mm -hmm. so there's multiple X, there's multiple inputs which map to the same output, we can parameterize that choice. Okay. So we construct this new thing. We call it a parametric inverse. So it will take in some value y, but also a parameter theta, and give you back one of the x's, which map to y. So just to give you a very simple example, the absolute value function is not invertible. Right? right? So Because if I take the absolute value of 5, I get 5. Minus. Yeah, if I take absolute value of minus 5, I also get 5. Right. But I can construct this thing called a parametric inverse. And it will take in some value, let's call it y, 5 in this case. And a parameter, let's say it's either 1 or minus 1. And it will just return this parameter theta times y. Right. So the point is that the output, depending on your choice of theta, will be either five or minus five. Right? Obviously, that's a kind of a, a trivial example, but the, the the intuition or the idea that we had was, oh, you can define these simple inverses for all of our simple functions like absolute value, addition, multiplication, mm-hmm. sine, and so on. And it turns out with you know a little bit of work, actually, you can define inverses for much more complicated. Functions are much more complicated programs. And is the idea then for,
0: with the example that you gave around finding a molecule that achieves uh, X level of efficiency in a solar panel, that uh, you would be able to uh, constrain by some set of molecules, or, uh, for example,
1: that would be your parameter. So in this case, uh, yeah, So suppose you, you give me some program, this forward simulation, right, and I think I can construct this parametric inverse. So you'll have many parameters and as you vary over the parameters you'll get out different molecules with the desired uh, efficiency right. right and so if you have some further constraints i don't know maybe you want a small molecule or maybe you want a molecule that you can synthesize right. then you can add these constraints to the you can impose those constraints on the parameter space right and mm-hmm. so a parameter inverse basically gives you the choice you, you choose a parameter value and it will okay. give you back one of, like a different input which maps to the same okay. output
0: and so you mentioned that you have uh, your current research is, or you mentioned in your abstract, I should say, your current research is applying this specifically to TensorFlow programs and uh, inverting the computational graphs for deep neural nets.
1: So, yeah, so we built a lot of machinery around TensorFlow programs. Okay. Um, It's not so much that we're focused on inverting neural networks, although that's something that we've been considering, Mm -hmm. it's just that TensorFlow programs have a nice kind of representation which is amenable to our algorithms, right? And so TensorFlow, you know, The people, graph structure in the, the, Exactly, right. For okay. so the graph structure yeah. So people often use it for, you know, uh, neural networks, but really it's a general kind of programming language, like mm-hmm. an embedded okay. programming language. Um, and so we have a tool, it's on GitHub, in some, you know, kind of slightly broken state, but <laughs> <laughs> you can check it out. Um, but one thing I would say is that more recently we've been moving over to using the Julia programming language. Okay. Um, and so we've kind of been building a, our own version of TensorFlow in Julia. Um, <clears throat> Interesting. it's still, yeah, so we still can compile down to TensorFlow if you want to use TensorFlow. Okay. TensorFlow has all these great things for optimization and so on that we want to, you know, I don't want to re-implement. And right. So we can still, um, compile down to TensorFlow and Python, but we, I moved, we basically we moved to Julia because, um, Basically, because of the type system, it allows us to do a lot more things more efficiently with a lot lot less code. Um, So that's the the direction we're going. And I would also recommend other people check out Julia if they get the chance. Huh.
0: So can you give me some examples of the application of this to AI systems or deep learning systems?
1: Yeah. So, so the ones, I mean, the ones I've spoken about in vision. um, So, you know, basically, if we're trying to build robots that act in the real world, they're going to have to Manipulate objects in the real world, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, for example, you can pick up a cup, right? This cup on the table and you know, it's, you know, it's a little bit elastic. It has a particular shape. It has some resistance. All -hmm. these things you know about the physical world allow you to freely interact with the physical world, right? And so you have some physical intuition. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that in order to build robots that aren't so rigid in how they interact with the world, we're going, we're going to have to kind of embed that physical knowledge into their brains as well. Okay. Um, and one way to do that is to allow them to have a simulator in their mind. But many of the things that they'll use the simulation for are kind of inverse simulations. So they'll mm-hmm. see, you know, for example, they may see the cup on the floor and they can figure out, oh, it fell over at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Or to go to the lower, like the lower perceptual things, like how does a robot learn to see? How does a robot see in the world? Well, it's got to take in images, you know, in its camera eyes, and mm-hmm. somehow figure out the geometric structure of the world, so it knows that the door, you know, is so you know so far away. It can disambiguate right. between the colors of the lights versus the color of the material. Mm-hmm. So I think many of like the core. You no, know, I don't have a like a concrete thing that we're trying to build, but I think many of the okay. core um, problems in AI, um, you know, this kind of technology is is, is relevant to. I mean, a, it's still a research a, project. I mean, yeah. research. so this sure. is the kind of thing that we do. Yeah,
0: um, and so. You were careful to kind of distinguish uh, between TensorFlow as a a general programming framework and its common use in deep learning. But uh, does the the work that you've done and the results that you've seen with reverse flow apply to deep neural nets that are constructed in TensorFlow? And like, what are there any? Like practical examples that you can uh, cite of taking a, like a real TensorFlow program and doing this program inversion to it and having it produce something.
1: Yeah. So there, there was a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of work with like adversarial examples recently, and like, but before, you know, there's work basically saying, okay, if I've trained some neural network, I want to find out, you know, what inputs would cause a kind of weird misclassification. Right? So people have worked on this for a little while. And so, in some sense, we can invert neural networks in a kind of, in the sense that you know, even a complicated neural network, eventually just boils down to some sequence of primitive operations. Sure. Basically, multiplications, sums, and some right. non nonlinearity, and even that nonlinearity also boils down to even simpler things. So, okay. because our inversion algorithm is defined in terms of these primitive ov- operations, in principle, we can invert, you know, a neural network with the current framework. But in practice, it's not the best way to do it. And so one of the things actually we've been working on is how can we kind of take a, a better approach to inverting neural networks. And so to the second part of your question, like why might you want to do that, for me I think the most interesting application is, again, inverting models of the world. So I've worked on inverse graphics. And to do that, I write down a normal rendering algorithm. I happen to write it in TensorFlow, but you know, I could have wrote, written it in Python or C or so on. But I think humans, we learn algorithms. We learn algorithms you know, from experience. And so it would be nice if we could take a learned algorithm, so something like a neural network, and also invert that. So I, do, I can do inverse graphics, but the, the algorithm that I'm inverting is a more realistic version of reality.
0: Is there an implication there that you're inverting not a... Um, I guess the picture that I had in my head of, of this was that you're... You're inverting, a, I guess, an architecture absence of like having been trained. Um, yeah. But it sounds like what you're saying is you're, you're you know the learning is coming in through the training, and so we're
1: inverting this trained neural. So this network is a, it's model. not it's not something that we're doing right now. So right, right now we so conceptual. This here. is this is conceptual. I mean, maybe like a better example would be in like physics and dynamics. So we can build pretty impressive physical simulators. That work well for, you know, rigid bodies and, you know, some elastic bodies, but they're not so good at things like hair, for example, and they're not so good at simulating things like cloth. And yet humans can still, you know, manipulate cloth. We still have a good intuition about how that works. And so I think a learning approach could supplement that. So we can maybe have some part of that model, which is, you know, handwritten and some part of that model is, is learn from experience. And there are people who are work, working on this right now
0: it's interesting so one of the examples that comes to mind for me is uh, there are some folks at Berkeley in their intelligent robotics lab that are applying reinforcement learning to teaching a, a, a robot how to tie a knot right right and a rope um, and so you know they you know the rope the, the robot is basically trying to mess around with the rope and learn the rope dynamics right. Um and it sounds like you know the approach that you're describing would be um, i don't know how how would the approach you're describing fit in that It's like once you learn this model for kind of basic rope dynamics, you can invert it to like what what is the conceptual thing that you're inverting it to so
1: so like the way you have to formulate this formulate it in this way, you'd say, okay, I have a model of you know rope dynamics mm-hmm. right and you can think about this as a probably a temporal model, right? So Mm -hmm. the time is the variable. Mm -hmm. And I have some desired state. Like I want, you know, after some amount of time, T, whatever, I want the the rope to be in a knotted state, right? Right. And so the inputs to that system are my actions. Mm -hmm. And obviously the system also acts in the absence of me doing anything, right? And so it's the inversion in the sense that I have to figure out what are the actions that I need to input into the system for me to um, Mm -hmm. tie Mm -hmm. the knot. Right, right. Um, and so this is as you know,
0: opposed to these actions produce this
1: model. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, like, I mean, in some ways, you know, people have an intuition. It's like if I want to do something, like, what do I have to do to, for that to be true? Yeah. Right? And so that's how you would formulate the problem in this way. Um, but the rope dynamics, as I'm saying, as I've been saying, this is something I think you can learn. Right. Right. We don't. I mean maybe people do have, you know, good models for rope dynamics, I'm not sure.
0: I think it's still work in progress. Right. Okay, so
1: yeah. <laughs> uh interesting, interesting. Um
0: so what else did you cover in the talk? Uh
1: so the thir- I mean the first I talked a bit about Julia. I would say that the first, you know, tw- 10 minutes was actually I talked a lot about psych psychology experiments. Okay. Um
0: from what perspective?
1: Uh so there's an experiment from the 1970s. I mean so these are all about this idea of mental simulation. Okay. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard to describe without diagrams, but the basic idea, is, it's called mental rotation. The basic idea is that you can see different shapes, mm-hmm. um, and they're either the same shape but rotated from different angles, or they're different shapes, right? okay. Diff- like different shapes entirely. Right? Okay. And so people did these studies where they said, okay, look at many of these shapes and say whether you think they're the same or whether you think they're different. Mm. And what they found is a very tight linear correlation with the angle of rotation and the amount of time it took people to respond. Okay. Like lending some support to the idea that the way people answer this question is that they look at the sh- they look at the shapes and they do a kind of mental rotation and they say, oh, I can rotate shape A into shape B. Mm. And like if they're more, you know, the, the more rotated, more is, rotated. the more simu- the longer the yeah. simulation takes. Yeah, and so like yeah. a, a kind of a whole subfield of, of psychological research came out of that idea. Huh? And so some part of my talk was saying, okay, this is you know obviously there's a lot of cool work there, and obviously they've um, done a lot of studies. Can we take the, that idea and make it computational? Can we build computational right. models of it? And can we build an AI that can do something similar? Mm-hmm. And if we were to do that, what kind of technologies would we need? What kind of uh, algorithms would we, would we need? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, personally, like, I'm motivated by, like, cool, in small studies like this, which pinpoint yeah. something interesting about how the mind works. And then you realize that despite all the kind of cool stuff that's happening in AI at the moment, deep learning, there are all these really simple things that we really haven't even got the right way to think about, right? And so those are the <laughs> things that interest, interest me most. Right, right. Cool. And then, uh, you mentioned
0: Julia, you mentioned the, the type, the type safe, uh, aspect of it. Are there, is Julia something that comes up a lot in the context of, uh, of AI? Does it lend itself to that type of work uh,
1: specifically?
0: I haven't heard it come up in that context much.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the, I mean, the main frameworks for AI are definitely in Python, sure, right? And I guess there's Torch, which is a right? But I would say Julia is building momentum. So Julia, okay. I mean, it came out of MIT, and the people who The relative, you know, were kind of data scientists. Okay. Um, maybe not machine learning people as such, but people who use MATLAB or C. I think the I was watching a guy watching a talk, and one of the main developers, he said he had this huge stack of C, R, um, MATLAB, and Python. Uh Right. And it's like, why is it so complicated? And so that was kind of the birth of of this language. So the main points are that one, it's very fast. Okay. Um, it's dynamic. It's also compiled. Um, and it has a kind of interesting type system, like a multi method dispatch type system. It's, I mean, it's. What does that mean? Um, so, like in, a, in an object oriented language like, like Python, for example, or C, right, you right. have some object, like, I don't know, you have like cat and you do cat dot, you know, make a right. sound, right? Cat dot um, meow. Cat dot meow. Um, in Julia, yeah. the methods, this, so this is the, what people call a single dispatch, right? But in Julia, the methods are not part of the object. They live, they live in like a separate space. Okay. Um, and so you would do meow, which takes in an object of type cat, mm. and it would meow that cat. And so obviously, you can do more things. You can have meow taking an object of type cat and some other object, like dog, and you know, the cat meows at the dog. Um, mm. So it sounds like a, you know, a simple thing, but it turns out that if you build your language on that principle, lots of nice Elegant features fall out. Hmm. Um, Is this related to the concept of mixins? It's, you know, it's definitely not used in machine learning so much, but I would mm-hmm. say there's a few packages like Flux.jl, There's also a TensorFlow binding, TensorFlow.jl, okay. um, And so I think it's gaining momentum, and I think because it's built on like a, like a nice set of core principles, right. I think actually it has the opportunity to strive as a machine learning uh, language. In okay. So that's why I put my it- money.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. And does it, it uh, presumably, it has some kind of you know, native or provided by a package, uh, strong notion of matrices and arrays and all that yeah, kind of
1: stuff. Yeah, so yeah, all of that stuff is, all is that's built there. in, right? And, and it's really well designed as well. They put a lot of thought into how to take what was good about MATLAB, discard what was bad. Um, mm. And so you have multi dimensional arrays and you have all the kind of things that you would expect from like a, a numerical programming language, right? Um, and it's fast. Also, there's like a GPU library now, so you can call native CUDA if you want. Um, So there's a lot of stuff.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, Did we hit on everything that you covered in your talk? I think so, pretty much, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much Mm -hmm. for taking a few minutes to chat with us. All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Zena, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twiml.ai.com slash talk slash 114. Definitely remember to vote for your favorite My AI video at twiml.ai.com slash myai. And of course, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.